Hello, and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history program at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Today, I am talking to Dr. Stephanie Averill, an instructor in the history program at SNHU and a jack-of-all-trades historian. Today, we will talk about her background, her use of historical skills in a variety of jobs outside of academia, and her advice for students pursuing history degrees. So what is your name and what do you do? I am Stephanie Averill and I do a lot of things actually. I teach uh, a number of courses for SNHU, which is always fun. I do teach a few courses for another university. I'm a mom, I'm an army wife, a volunteer, and a freelance author, so I, I keep busy. That does keep you busy. We, we will come back to a lot of that as we come along here. But for now, what is your academic and professional background? Well, I got my doctorate at the University of New Hampshire with a focus on U.S. foreign policy, uh, especially in modern U.S. history. But I also have areas of concentration in modern Europe, uh, as well as a, a wacky out there field in ancient Greece and Rome, especially political development. So I enjoy a lot of different areas and have studied widely. I, I refer to myself sometimes as a jack-of-all-trades historian. I enjoy so much of it that I tend to dabble a little bit, as well as focus and concentrate on my particular area, which tends to be Cold War history. Uh, on the international scale, so looking at geopolitics as well as how domestic politics within the various nations affect their engagement in the geopolitical sphere. And was that the topic of your research during your doctoral program, your dissertation, your thesis, that kind of thing, or were those on different topics? It's related. My dissertation focused on the process of rearming West Germany. It happened so quickly after World War II that I examined how mentally, how culturally was that acceptable to people. And I, I focused on the Atlantic community and the language and the persuasion and winning over public opinion and, and that process of identity formation, really. That's complicated. Well, I enjoy uh, looking at language and looking at uh, imagery and, and the symbols that people use to try to define themselves, to try to define other people, whether they be friend or foe. How we describe ourselves says a lot about us. And I, I think that the most interesting time periods for me are those where everything is in flux, that there's been a major paradigm shift, and people are just struggling to catch up mentally because they let more slip. We're so guarded. As, as human beings throughout history, people present the portrait they want their contemporaries to see. They present the portrait sometimes even that they want history to see. But in, in moments of transition, it seems like people drop a few more clues as to what's really going on beneath the surface. They let more out, and I find that really fun and fascinating. That I agree. That is really interesting. Are there other major turning points like the end of the Cold War that, or, or really the, uh, sorry, the end of World War II, I suppose? Are there any other major turning points that you've looked into with a similar perspective? Not in a, a serious academic way, but I have definitely considered transitions. I'm, I'm very interested in uh, Native American history, uh, especially first contact. 
and the transition as, as the world changes in a, a rather dramatic way. And so your research teaching interests tend to fall into the Cold War and these transition periods with a whole bunch of other kind of uh, side topics with Greece and Rome and all that. Are there any uh, other teaching or research interests that we haven't uh, mentioned yet? Um, I think we've covered most of them. I do a lot with conflict. So world wars, both World War One, World War Two, and of course the Cold War. Um, but any era where, where there's a, a great deal of conflict, I again, see a lot of identity formation there. So I tend to find my teaching leans in those directions. It's focused on, on war and conflict, uh, both in a military sense, but I would say especially in a cultural and political sense. Now, at the beginning of all this, you mentioned that you are involved in a lot of activities. Uh, you, you mentioned the military wife, you mentioned writing, you mentioned volunteering. Um, as, as a military spouse, it sounds like you are not engage in the traditional outlets for quote-unquote history, <laughs> usual history productivity being, you know, books, articles, teaching uh, full-time at a university or something like that. How do you find yourself using the skills of the historian outside of th the traditional uh, career tracks for historians? Sure, absolutely. I, I think that was a, a real transition for me, actually. It wasn't an easy transition. I was in a traditional tenure track position for uh, about five years before I became a nomad <laughs> as an army wife. And I really kind of struggled with that transition, coming out of the more traditional track and into a non-traditional track. But the reality is history is really translatable. In terms of its skill set, I've found that there are so many different fulfilling things that I can do with the skill set that I've built up as a historian, especially in terms of communication, both written and oral, and research and analysis. You need to be able to, um, well, as an army spouse, <laughs> I have to be able to dig into obscure documents and figure out what's really going on here. Uh, but in terms of my volunteer activities, uh, the community here, it, it takes a lot of hands to make the world go around. And it needs people who can be trainers, which is basically another word for a teacher, that we can uh, explain things, that we can help people build their own skill sets and uh, resiliency in, in the face of all of the challenges that they're facing. So I've had some tremendous opportunities to participate in training alongside my husband often, which is also wonderful, in, in terms of uh, life skills, resiliency, and all of those things really boils down to breaking down the difficult-to-access military jargon the challenges that people might not have faced before if they're new to the military, and helping them develop ways of succeeding and thriving in the midst of that. As an educator, as a, a traditional college professor, part of my job was also mentoring and encouraging those life skills and helping my students to problem solve. And I really loved that mentoring role and I find that is something that I have continued in the same age group actually but in a different uh, capacity so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I participate with a lot of women's groups on uh, post and I have uh, written reflective material for them. I've uh, lectured, I've taught 
all in various different capacities, not necessarily lecturing on history, but the reality is once you have history in your bones, it can express itself in different ways. So examples from history that can help illustrate or clarify a certain situation, as well as just the basic organizational communication skills. I think we don't entirely realize how much history teaches us about how to tell a story, how to get through to people, how to make something both rigorous and relevant at the same time. History does all that, and you take that with you wherever you go. As I said, my, my transition was a tough one, but it's been really fulfilling in the end. I've heard people say, and I, and I think this is kind of true, that history can be valuable in outside, kind of outside the his, history academia field because history, in addition to, like you said, it helps us to learn how to communicate, present information, organize information. It also helps us to understand basically the way the world works, kind of how systems operate, um, because we have a knack, what, what's, it's either an innate knack or trained knack, but we have a knack in being able to identify how systems work, because we're able to trace change over time, we're able to trace cause and effect, uh, we're able to incorporate you know, the voices of the past versus the present, so we have the, an ability to which probably is one of the reasons we have an ability to explain how things work. Absolutely, and there's there's no field that history doesn't reach into. There's a history of science, there's a history of mathematics, there's a history of medicine, there's a history of obviously military and politics in the traditional fields, there's the history of uh, race relations. There, there's so much that history touches that as we go through those areas and see connections between them, it's easier for us to make connections in the contemporary world. And I'm not going to lie, having spent a great deal of time in the National Archives reading documents written by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Department of Defense helps enormously in understanding the current Department of Defense, how it operates, how it runs, uh, why they say the things they say and do the things they do. I, I, I get it because I've seen, I guess, behind the curtain albeit 60 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but it's amazing how little that type of language changes over time. We tend to think about stuff written in the past as being some kind of an alien language, but when you actually dig into it, a lot of the there really hasn't been a whole lot of change since maybe the 18, you know, the mid 1850s or something. Before that, you start to get into the archaic types of English, but the the language hasn't really changed all that much beyond the introduction of introduction of new technical terms like internet or something, I suppose. But uh, the actual jargon of how systems operate and professions operate, a lot of that stuff really has not changed all that much over time. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're seeing a lot of the same patterns, even a lot of the same language, as you mentioned, uh, and, and certainly a lot of the same concerns. It, human beings and how they interact together don't actually change all that much. It seems like there is a strong streak of human nature that tends to breed true, and there are differences, of course, across different time periods, different philosophies and worldviews as they're implemented. But human beings tend to fall into certain patterns whenever they can get away with it. And we can recognize those from, from the past. And, and I tend to avoid the sort of gross 
generalizations about history repeating itself or, or uh, you can look at the past for lessons for today because we're not replicating the same exact circumstances, so it's not an easy one-to-one -one correlation. That being said, uh, along the lines of human beings behaving in certain ways, well, there, there are some lessons we can draw from that. There are some uh, direct applications of understanding how these systems have worked in the past and uh, what factors affected them then to help us understand perhaps what factors might be affecting things now. The quote about history repeating itself is one of the things that always drives me nuts. Of course, I think the reason it pops up so often is that that's one of the maybe two or three quotes about history that everybody seems to know, and so people like to <laughs> toss it around. But it is one of those quotes that drives me nuts because, like you said, history does not repeat itself. There's similarities. And there is the issue of human nature, which does not change all that much over time. Uh, so I, I, mean, I guess we could fall back on the quote that, uh, I, I think it was Mark Twain that talked about how history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, a little bit closer to the way history works. It's never a one-to-one -one repeat because there's so many variables, different personalities involved. It doesn't repeat automatically or, or identically to what happened in the past, but you, there are trends, and uh, and I think that does come out of human the fact that human nature does not change all that much. So what advice do you have for undergraduate or graduate history students that are either about to graduate or maybe just starting the program, but what advice do you have for them on successfully either navigating school or navigating the real world once they graduate? I would say if I could give one piece of advice, it would be to make plans but not set expectations. Because it's a very good thing to plan ahead, have a sense of where you want to go, set your goals and, and push towards them. But at the same time, your path is not going to look like someone else's path. Even if you go a traditional uh, history route, teaching, writing books, articles, et cetera, et cetera, your path is not going to look like other people's paths. And if you try to make that happen, you're going to fall into all kinds of pitfalls. You're going to miss out on really great opportunities. So I would say be flexible enough to do things a little bit differently. And, and don't set an impossible standard for yourself. As I said before, my transition out of traditional university teaching and into online teaching and volunteering and, and all of these other roles was not an easy one. And in part, that was because I felt like I was somehow failing as a historian. But the reality is, I think I have done just as much good. I have used my skills. I have used my abilities. And I've made the world a better place. By, by being a historian in the roles that I've taken. I think that um, we shouldn't try to artificially define ourselves, but instead live life, make decisions based on your values and priorities, set goals, absolutely, but be willing to take your own path rather than trying to force your feet on someone else's path. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it is a message that I think think unfortunately gets lost in a lot of graduate programs and even some undergraduate programs too where when people think of historian of course everybody immediately thinks of the stereotypical professor leading the life of the mind and all of that but of course the, we, we all know that the reality of that just isn't true anymore uh, tenure is disappearing 
the tenured professor ideal is kind of very slowly dying. <laughs> and so I think that's a very good point that we need to keep in mind that there are other options out there and there are ways that you can make a positive impact on the world even if you're not teaching. For some people, uh, teaching would be maybe the wrong choice because there's other ways to go. And so I think that's a, a, a great point that just because you're not going into the traditional realm doesn't mean you've failed. And that is a struggle that a lot of historians go through because, as we mentioned, of small falling numbers of people are going into traditional academic experience and so a lot of us are going into alternative types of arrangements and that can be very difficult especially when you're in university you're surrounded by professors that made it and so it seems obvious well that that must be the route to go and those professors don't always know what the what other options are out there and so they may not know how to encourage people to look in other directions so I'm glad to hear that you are advocating that people look in other directions I think that's going to be valuable for students definitely and and I was fortunate my dissertation advisor who's still a very very good friend and his wife who's also a, a faculty member uh, both basically kind of gave me a wake-up call and said look, you would never hold anyone else to the standards you're demanding of yourself. So really, be realistic. What is good? What is positive? And what are you really doing? What do you want? And that's okay. You don't have to want what everybody else tells you you're supposed to want. And I think on that positive note, we will call it a day. So thank you for okay. joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.